today, we are going to begin this sermon series on the Ten Commandments. Just curious, how many of y'all heard a sermon series on the Ten Commandments? Wow. Okay. Well, all right then. Okay, Ten Commandments. It's the first time in 12 years I've actually preached through this. In some ways, it's sort of a culmination of many of the things that we talk about regularly. What I'd like to do this morning is let's go ahead and read this big chunk found in Exodus 20. And as always, the first sermon is sort of an introductory sort of sermon that lays the groundwork framework for the rest of where we're going. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation, those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it's a day of Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Verse 13, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of God. You've heard me say this a lot in our church, and we talk about this a lot. There is this widespread, I would almost say universal assumption, idea in the world that goes something like this, that there is a God who is good, and we are not so good. In order for us to be accepted by this God, be loved by this God, get in on this God, gain credibility with this God, we have to be good. There is this mentality out in the world, and I heard, overheard this conversation again, sitting in a coffee shop as two people were talking about religions of the world. There is this universal widespread belief or assumption that if you want to get in on this God, gain credibility, acceptance, be loved by this God, you have to be good, perform, behave, obey the commandments, obey the laws, obey God's regulations, because if you do, you're in. If you don't, you're out. That's the reason why. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning and you've heard this word, karma. Good things happen to good people. Bad things happen to bad people. And so if there's this some God who 
weighs sort of a cosmic, cosmic scale, our good deeds versus our bad deeds. At the end of this, if there is something called a judgment day, God's going to look at our good deeds versus our bad deeds. And those whose good deeds overweigh the bad get in. For those of you that maybe are sort of like, I think I'm a Christian, I'm not, you're coming back to church. This is why it's been hard for you to be back in church because you're sitting here this morning and the thing that's going through your mind is, I've been away from God, from church for a while. I've done some things, some things that I deeply regret. Some sins that I deeply regret. And it's been really hard to come back. Why? Because something inside of you says, in order for me to come back to church be accepted by God, I got to sort of sanitize, got to clean up, got to take care of some things and get myself straight so that when I finally come back to church, God will say, oh, good, you've cleaned yourself a little, a little bit. Now I can accept you. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. And then, of course, there's those of you that are Christian, and you've fallen off the wagon. You've gotten involved in some sins, some habits. You're doing some things you're ashamed of. And again, you're sitting here this morning without anybody saying anything to you. You just feel a sense of guilt, a sense of condemnation. That's, and you're sitting going, I feel like such a hypocrite singing these songs, and I don't know if I want to be here. Because I know that the way I am right now, there's no way God would accept me, love me for who I am. Maybe I believe it in my head, but I don't truly believe it in my heart. And you're sitting here again with this mindset, this assumption that's deeply embedded in us that says, good God, bad me, got to be good in order for me to be accepted. I got to tell you, I've been a pastor for over 20-some years. And there are fewer things that have done more to alienate people from God than this assumption, this belief. That in order for me to get right with God, accepted by God, gain credibility with God, I got to perform, I got to do, I got to obey. And this, this belief that God would love me, accept me with my junk, just as I am, just seems too impossible to believe. And so you've hit the ceiling in your relationship with God. You're sitting here this morning, you're listening to this morning, and there's a part of you that says, not me. For him, for him, for her, but not me. If there's ever a message that God sent to the world about who he is and what he's like, the message could not be more different and opposite than this assumption and this belief. Because what we're going to look at for the next few weeks is this. The message that God gives to his people and then to all of us is that you don't ever, you can't ever find acceptance with God through your behavior, ever. Is that good news? And the text that we're going to look at, ironically, is the text that people have associated with this idea, this mindset. In order for you to be accepted God by love by God, you have to do, you have to perform, you have to do. Uh, and people have used this and distorted this. To paint this picture that God sits up there and conditions our acceptance based on how we do. We're going to ask this question. So, Peter, what about the laws? What about the commandments? What about all of these things that God asks us to do in the Bible? And buried in the story of the Ten Commandments is the key to understanding the relationship between God's law and God's, law and God's love. And here's what we're going to find out if you need to, like, leave in ten minutes. Here's the bottom line. What we're going to find out is this, that God's laws and God's rules are not conditions for a relationship with God. They are a confirmation of a relationship with God. 
Is that good news? That God's rules and God's laws are not conditions of his love for us, but they are rather a confirmation of his love for us. Did you, did you hear what I said? Are you chewing on it a little bit? God's rules and God's laws are not conditions of God's acceptance. They are confirmation. They're not conditions to God's love or confirmation of God's love for us. And if you understood that, the entire Bible would read differently. You hear what I'm saying? All right. See, I know this is hard. By the way, I haven't preached like in four months, so it's going to feel like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant this morning, okay? Exodus 20, the year is 1400 B.C. But three months prior to Exodus 20. And that's so good to see you this morning. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I thought about you. Because you, one of the first things you said to me is you walked into our church, you said, Pastor Peter, I grew up in a Catholic church all my life. And none of this made sense. Because the idea I have, because you remember, there's a God who sits there, who judges me based on how I do or don't do. Is when I walked into this church, I heard about this God who loved me and died for me and accepted me as I am. Do you remember that conversation? It's vivid in my mind. you know why? Because you're not the only one that said that to me. There are people sitting out there, grew up in good Christian churches. And you guys wonder why I'm so passionate about this stuff. Prior to this moment, three months before, three months before, Israel had been in slavery. A little Sunday school lesson for how many years in Egypt? 400 years. They've been enslaved for 400 years. Do you remember who it began with? It began with a guy named Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had, remember? Abraham, then Isaac, then Isaac has two sons. Jacob then has 12 sons. And they all go to Egypt, of course, as free people. And then years pass, and this big family becomes even bigger until they're about 3 million strong, scholars say. And they become a nation. But the story of this family, this nation, is nothing but what? Remember? Slavery. That's all they've ever known. All they've ever known in their nation's history is slavery. Generation after generation after generation. Slavery and oppression. They had no laws. Why? You're a slave. You don't need laws. You wake up and your master says, this is what you do. And you do what your master says. They had no government. You're in the oppressive regime of the Egyptian government. You have no king or ruler. Pharaoh claims to be God and everybody says he's God. For 400 years, the nation of Israel been enslaved. And the Bible says that they cried out to God, and God heard their cries. I love that part, because I know there's some of you sitting out there going, does God hear my cry? Does God hear my prayers? Nation of Israel, that's exactly where you were, and God heard his prayers, and he sends a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses comes. And God uses them powerful. We'll come back in a little bit. He delivers them. And three months later, they are sitting Mount Sinai, and Moses is about to receive the law from God. And here's what happens. Verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who, by the way, I'm got a little creative license here, okay? A little creative license. This is, this is how I think it went. I am the Lord your God who, and Moses goes, Zzz. God, time out. Hold on, hold on. I am the who? I am the Lord your God. No, 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 God. You mean I am the Lord the God. 
Because when you say, I am the Lord, your God, it kind of sounds like you're saying we have a, what? A relationship. You mean, you mean I am the Lord, the God? No, no, no. I am the Lord, your God. To which Moses goes, but we haven't done anything. Hey, months ago, we were captured and captive slaves for 400 years. We hadn't done it. And, and you now are saying, I am the Lord, your God. You are my people. We have a relationship. Moses says, God, just like that? To which God goes, no, not just like that. You interrupted me. Hold on. <laughs> I am the Lord. I told you I was going to create a license. Your God. Verse 2, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And all of a sudden, Moses is a flashback. For 400 years, the nation of Israel had been enslaved by Egypt. And they cried out to God, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. And God hears their prayers, sends a guy named Moses. And Moses goes to a dude named Pharaoh and he says, Pharaoh, you think you're God, but the God sent me to you. And he wants you to let my people go. And Pharaoh says, I don't think so. Our whole economy is based on slave labor. If I let you go, our entire economy collapses. There's no way I'm going to let you go. And God uses Moses to do what? He says, in 10 plagues. You know what the 10 plagues were? Every single one of the 10 plagues was God's answer to Pharaoh who says, you think this is God? I'm going to show you. So you worship the Nile River as a source of life. God turned the Nile River into what? Blood. You worship the sun as God who gives you life? God what? Blotted out the sun. Every single one of the plagues was God saying, you think this is God? I'm going to show you who the God is. And 400 years, God uses Moses' miraculous. Now, Pharaoh, the Bible says, hardened his heart. So the last straw. Do you remember the last plague? Turn your Bibles a few back. Exodus chapter 12. You've got to go back there. You've got to go there. Exodus 12. By the way, do you guys like the Old Testament? I love the Old Testament. I love the blood, the guts, the violence. I love it all. I love it all. What's that? And I don't mind preaching on it either. Like, no, no shirking the hard parts. Like, this is hard. God presents himself in the Old Testament. It makes you kind of go, what was that? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And that's okay. Don't shirk it. Exodus 12, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, jump down to verse 3, tell the whole community of Israel to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Verse 4. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Verse 5. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Verse 6. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at night. In case you go, oh, slaughter. That's like, that's like talking on their cell phone for them, okay? They did it all the time. The sacrificial thing was a part of who they were. Verse 7. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lamb. Now, you got to understand. When the Israelites are hearing for the first time, do you think their response was, oh, great, makes perfect sense? What do you think they did? Like, what, what? Come again? What? What? Slaughter. Take the blood and put it on the doorpost. Why? And then God says, jump down to verse 12. 
Because on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Verse 13. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will what? Pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. What was God saying? What was God saying to the nation of Israel? One word. Trust me. I need you to trust me. I know this doesn't make much sense. But I'm going to ask you to do this one thing. Listen carefully. As an evidence of your trust and confidence in me. Take that blood. Put it on the doorpost. And when I come and judge the gods of Egypt, I will pass over you. I know it doesn't make much sense. But it's an evidence of your trust in me. Put the blood on your why? And this is the key. Listen. Because God was saying here, I don't want to just be your lawgiver. I want to be your savior. I want to be your rescuer. I want to be your deliverer. I want to come down. You all need to hear this. On your greatest point of need. And not just give you law. But rescue. Deliver. Save. And three months later, Moses standing. Mount Sinai. And God says, I am the Lord. Say with me, what? Your God who delivered you out of slavery in Egypt. And even thick-headed Moses, it's beginning to get through. And he realizes we are not here to get in on this relationship with God. We are here because what? We are already We are not here to establish a relationship with God. We are here because what? By the blood on the doorpost, a relationship has already been what? Sealed. What would you do, Moses? Trust? Why are you here? I don't know why we're here. That's why we're here. You're here to to tell us what to do. And God says, the one thing I need you to do to enter into this relationship, trust. Does this make any sense to you? Let me ask you this. How would the commandments, we're going to get into this, read differently if you and I understood that God was, as he's about to give the law, saying to them, you're not here to get in. You're already in. You're not here to establish a relationship unless it's well established. You're not here to be accepted by me by doing these things. You've already been accepted. Now do this. How would that change how we read the commandments? Talk to me. How would that change? What are the commandments for? The commandments are given. To be in and not to get in. Say it with me. Ready? The commandments are given to be in 
and not to get it. What do I mean? The commandments are given for God to say, this is for an intimate relationship, a relationship of intimacy with people who are already in and not given to people who through earning it, they could earn acceptance and a relationship. It's for those already in a level of intimacy and not to gain acceptance. Where do you get that from, Peter? When is the law given? The sequence is incredibly important because the way you and I read our Bibles, we act like God gave the law while they were still in Egypt. As if to say, do these things, obey them, follow them, then I'll deliver you, then I'll save you. Is that what God does? No. God sets his love on them, sets them free, delivers them, rescues them. I am your God. Then he gives them the law and says, I'll do it. Do you know what the word Torah, the first five books in the Bible, literally mean in Hebrew? It literally means instruction between father and son. Torah. Biblical Hebrew word. Instruction between father and son. In other words, the motive of Torah or instruction was so that a father, in the context of a relationship with the son, could grow in intimacy. Church, is this good news? God doesn't come to the children of Israel and say, here's the law, obey it. Receive it. Then I'll deliver you. God delivers them, sets his love on them, then gives them the law right in the midst of the giving and receiving Ten Commandments. To me, is the greatest story you will ever hear. And frankly, it's the greatest story your non-Christian friends and your people, Christian friends who walked away from church, need to hear. That a relationship with God is not predicated on keeping the rules. He established a relationship with his people before they even knew what the rules were. Sierra, is this good news? Girl, I'm telling you, I don't know why this doesn't resonate more with more of us. God doesn't say your relationship with the predicate on keeping the rules. He establishes a relationship before they even know what the rules are. And God is saying in no uncertain terms, I have chosen for myself a people. Not because of what they've done or performed, but simply because they trusted me. They did the one unusual thing that I wanted them to do as evidence of their trust in me. Take the blood of the lamb and the goat. Put it on the doorpost as evidence of your trust in me. That's all it took for God to initiate and establish that relationship. And God says, now that I have delivered you, now that the relationship is set and sealed here, here, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. I want you to be everything you were designed to be. I want to be in a relationship intimacy with you. So here's the law. Obey it. Follow it. You guys, every single person walking on the face of it, there's two reasons, two very different motives, and only two with which you can approach the law of God. One is this, and there are many of you here, I want to obey the law. Why? So God would answer my prayers. So God would accept me. So God would get me married. Know what I'm talking about. I want to obey the law so that God will give me that job. I want to obey the law so that I could build a ladder to heaven. And the other motive could not be more fundamentally different. It says, says, God has already pardoned me. God has already forgiven me and accepted me. 
And I want to obey it. Why? To please him, to love him back, to become more like him, to serve him. If your approach to the law of God is one of, I'm going to do it as a letter to have an acceptance. I'm going to. If that's your approach, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to be crushed by the law. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You're going to try, and you're going to hate it. You're going to try, you're going to hate it. You're going to try, you're going to hate it. You try, you hate. Eventually you hate yourself, then you hate the Bible, then you hate the church, then you start hating God, and you wind up in Fundamentalist Anonymous. <laughs> so you came to me, you readily admitted, I am a recovering what? Pharisee. Please, don't even act like you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Hey, I'm re- by remember that conversation, right? We walk into church, and seriously, you are at that point. Why? You are crushed by the law. Why? Your entire approach to why you obey the law is so that God will love me, so that God would answer my prayers, so that God would accept me, and you're crushed by it. The other is you turn to what? You become self-righteous and smug. Do you understand? There is no in-between. You're either going to become self-righteous smoke. Why? Because I'm doing it. Why can't you? I'm doing it. Why can't you? I'm doing it. Why can't you? Or you're crushed by the law if your approach is, God hasn't delivered me, saved me. I need to do this so that he can. The other approach, fundamentally different, is what? God already delivered me. God already saved me. I'm doing this so I can love him. I'm doing this so I can obey him. I'm doing so I can become more like him. And you know what that does? It transforms. It doesn't smugify. It doesn't make you self-righteous. It doesn't crush you. It frees This is so powerful to me. To actually think God already loves me through Jesus. That settles. And the way that I approach the commandments and the laws is I'm going to do this to love him back. My acceptance is already settled. I want to become more like him. His love for me is settled. That's settled. I, I, I do this to resemble him. And that transforms. It doesn't harden. It doesn't make you self-righteous. Can we all agree we don't need any more self-righteous smug Christians in the world? Can we all agree to that? Well, how do you get there? What's your approach to the law? Can we all agree that we don't need any Christians in the church who are just crushed by the burden and walking around? Just Can we agree that that's, that's a little hard because a lot of you are going, you're talking about me. Listen, two, and only two approach to the law. By the way, so they go, oh, this is so encouraging. Warm fuzzies, I love that. I love that. He loves me. There's a challenge. I always say that grace has a bite to it. Grace has a bite to it. Don't, don't understand God's grace. Is, oh, that's just so warm. No, grace is, what do I mean? What do I mean? The wonderful thing and beautiful thing about the Bible, Christianity, is that God says he's a person, and we could have a personal relationship with him. The thing about impersonal object is that your relationship with an impersonal object, they don't make any demands on you. They don't make any claims on you. A relationship with an impersonal object, they ask nothing of you. By the way, some of you are in relationships where it's as if you're in a relationship with an impersonal object. If you're in one of those, you need to get the heck out as soon as possible. But the thing about relationship is a living, breathing human being who loves you is that they make claims on you, don't they? 
they make demands on you. What do I mean? Simply put, a personal relationship is impossible without commands. Here's the thing, though. When you're deeply in love, they don't seem like commands. They don't seem like demands. They don't seem like claims. Right, Laura? Right, Pradeep? You sit there and go, I already know what she wants. Well, or maybe he doesn't. Um, <laughs> they don't seem like claims, do they? They don't seem like demands. They don't seem like, I have to be. No, you are glad to do it. And they don't even have to ask you. You're constantly figuring out these claims, these demands, these commands. Whatever. I want to please. I want to love. I want to show affection for. And here's the thing. The greater the person, the greater the claims. But you don't mind. There's some people you will clear your schedule gladly for, right? And God comes along. The greatest person who ever says, I want to be in relationship with you. And we heard claims, demands. Mm, I'll drop everything for you, for her, for him. I'll clear up my, but God, you see what I'm saying? A personal relationship with God entails claims, demands. But if your heart is right in the right place, they don't seem like demands, claims, demands. Because that's how they feel. They feel like what? Does this picture of Christian life just seem foreign to you? Does it seem like, is that even possible, Peter? Uh, this verse is really, really hard for me. Every time I read it, John chapter 14, verse 21 says, He who has my word and obeys my word, my Father and I will come to him, and we will manifest ourselves in him. Do you know what this promise is saying? Hugely encouraging but challenging. It's saying if you want God to be real to you, if you want God to be real to you, if you want the reality of God, the intimacy with God, the vitality of a relationship with God, where he manifests himself, and if he shows himself to you, the Bible says, then obey. Obey. For many of us, the reason why God is not real to us reason why intimacy with God is fleeting or non-existent. reason why closeness with God is something that we just hear about but never encounter, it could be we are not obeying. Practical application this week. Pray this prayer, God. Point out things to me in my life where I'm doing things that I shouldn't be doing. Sin of commission. And also point out things to me, this is important, in my life where I'm not doing things that I should be doing. Like loving my neighbor as myself. God, what are the areas in my life where I am not being obedient you because if you're sitting here this morning and you go God is not real to me I'm not experiencing intimacy with God it could be according to the words of Jesus you and I are not obeying by the way if you're not a Christian here or you've been a while since you've come 
and in the church, and you go, see, Peter, the problem is people that are obedient, they're smug, self-righteous. And Here's the thing. The amazing thing is the Bible says when you live a life of obedience, you become incredibly approachable. Don't associate someone who's moral with someone who's holy and unapproachable. We saw too many bad examples like that in church. I always go, Jesus was the holiest, sinless, perfect person on the face of the earth, and he was also the most approachable and accepting person that ever walked. If you want to know whether you are being obedient or not, question, how approachable are you by non-Christians? How approachable are you by people who struggle in their faith? Don't associate morality and obedience to unapproachable. No, 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 no. Jesus was the most approachable person. And yet he knew God perfectly. And listen, listen, okay, I got to finish up here. What's the law for? Secondly, secondly, for freedom and not bondage. For freedom and not bondage. What do I mean? Can I ask you something? Why do people think that Christianity is restrictive? Why? Let's be honest. Why? That's because that's the way we live. Is it not true? People think Christianity is there because that's the way we've been taught and that's how we live. Christianity is very, very restrictive. You know, I heard this joke from somewhere. I think it was me, John Orkberg, who said, you know, a lot of Christians act like the dog who thought his name was no because it's all his master ever said to him. No, no, no. We walk around going, you know, that's pretty much my life. God just picked up and goes, no, 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 because he wants to rob me of my joy. So Christians also believe lies of non-Christians, which is here's what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to do anything that I want, whenever I want, however I want it. Freedom. Problem is, for many of us, that kind of freedom has genuinely cost us our ability to be free. Some of you, your ability to have anything you want to has actually cost you your freedom. How are you free when even though you want to quit, you can't quit that thing that you freely, by the way, chose to do? See, you could drink and get loaded every night. Eventually, it'll catch up to you. Eventually, you'll hurt your family. You'll embarrass your kids. Your marriage will suffer. And eventually you may get to a place where even though you want to quit, you can't. In the name of freedom, you freely chose to do something that has you so enslaved that you can't even stop even if you want to. The Bible says that freedom comes in two flavors. One, freedom from. Freedom from external constraints. My four-year-old Noah. You're not the boss of me. (laughs) The amazing thing is, I have never, ever uttered these words to my four-year-old son. Noah, I am the boss of you. I have never said that. But you know what? It's a parallel metaphor, Dan. You know why? Because every single human being comes out of the womb going to God, you're not the boss of me. Freedom from, external constraints. Second, though, there is this thing called freedom for. What do I mean? Freedom for living the kind of life that you were created for. Freedom for is how I put it. It's the kind of freedom that comes as a result of honoring your design. Silly examples, 
because I can't find better ones. Look at a bird in the sky, free. Is that free or what? Just fly. Well, what if that bird all of a sudden decided, you know what? I think I want to learn to do high dives and swim because that looks a lot more fun than flying. A bird that decides to swim, does he become more free? No. Why? He's not built to swim. He's built to fly. Well, what about that fish, Nemo, in your home living room? He's sitting there in the aquarium watching television with you. And all of a sudden, one day he goes, you know, that looks a lot of fun, just, just lounging on the couch. <laughs> so somehow he could flip himself out of the thing. And he sits on the couch next to you because he's like, this looks like so much fun. Does he become more free? Answer, no. Why? He's not acting in accordance to what? His design. He's not built to. What about a car? Car, it's amazing. I live in the city. Every time a car commercial comes out, you have a, it's all open roads. Open roads. Open roads. I'm like, can somebody make a car commercial for someone who lives in Chicago, right? It's all open roads. People get in the way, you know, wind in the way, whatever. Just Nobody, nobody, though, likes doing maintenance on their car. Anybody love doing maintenance? I hate doing maintenance. But the car comes with something called a car owner's manual. And the manual, it says what? Change your engine oil. Check your brakes. Do it well. Do it properly. Why? Because if you don't, here's the thing. If you don't do that, nobody in Chicago is going to come to you and fine you. You know what I'm saying? Pradeep, why are you not changing your oil? Here's a $50. Actually, we live in the city of Rahm Emanuel, so we may actually get. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. No. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Look at this thing. Sorry. <laughs> My point is, in most cities, people aren't going to come and find you. Why? Here's the thing. You're just punishing yourself. You're just, you're punishing yourself, you're punishing the investment by not following the design of the, what point, what? What were you created for? What were you designed for? How do you find out? You know what the Bible says? You go to what? The word of God. You don't do what our culture says, which is, hey, nobody going to tell me what to do. I do what I want to do. My heart, my soul, my gut tells me what to do. Really? Do you remember how you wanted to do that thing like five years ago? Or like ten years ago? And you're so glad you didn't follow your gut. And now you know better. We're wiser because... Where do you go to go? How am I supposed to live? Where am I supposed to be? How do I live in a way that gives me freedom and live in the way that God designed me? The Bible says you go to what? The word of God. You go to the creator and the designer of you and me who out of love said, this is how you live. This is how you live. So let me put it this way. We read the Ten Commandments as, this is what you have to do. God, through the Ten Commandments, was saying, this is who you are. So we don't so much break the Ten Commandments as we break ourselves when we violate them. You sin in the short run, yeah, you'll hurt people. you hurt God more. But in the long run, the Bible says, you hurt yourself the most. When you trample on the law of God, 
We're just trampling on ourselves when we violate the law of God. We're violating how we were supposed to be. What if we actually approach all the laws and commandments? Not as a way for God to make people good. By the way, if you think commandments are given to make you good, you're always going to think that God's trying to keep something good. The laws were given to an already set free people to live free. They were not given to make bad people do them and be good. They were given to an already redeemed people to live redeemed lives. You've heard me say this before because it's one thing to get out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of you. Because we all have Habits from Egypt, don't we? Oh, yes, we do. What's yours? What's mine? That's what the Ten Commandments are. Oh, look at those. Sex. Can't wait for that one. Money. Can't wait for that one. Power. Can't wait for that one. <laughs> Parents. <laughs> honor. Oh, that one's going to be hard. I'm bringing lots of tissues that Sunday. It's going to be hard. Remember, this isn't. Do them and this is how you were designed to be. Uh, um, I'm almost done here. Um, the irony about freedom, irony about freedom. And Byron, I thought about you the whole time when I was preparing this. The irony about freedom, you guys, is to become truly free, you must surrender. To be truly free, you must, say it with me, surrender. One more time. To be truly free, you must what? Surrender. It goes against everything a human nature thinks about freedom, right? But the Bible says to truly become free, you must, what do I mean? An alcoholic, first step towards sobriety is to acknowledge and admit what? I don't have the willpower. The first step for an alcoholic is to admit there's higher power and give up your will, which is also a way of what? Surrender. And God says, there's a cosmic order design I've established for you. You ready? And I need to remind you this every Sunday because when you walk out, the world's going to tell you opposite. You ready? Here it is. You and I are not the center of the universe. You and I are not the captain of our own ships. You and I are not the masters of our own fate. There is a God, and we are not him. There is a spiritual order, God says, I've established. True freedom. Surrender. I don't know if I could trust him, Peter. 1,400 years later. We're called to go. Brother, what timing. Good Lord. 1,400 years later, Jesus is sitting in an upper room with 12 guys. And they're celebrating. Do you remember? The Passover. God said, you only have to do this once. Walk under the doorpost once. But I want you to commemorate it every year. So here's Jesus, 1,400 years later. He's in the upper room. And he takes the cup. And he says, 
Hey, guys. Remember how long ago Moses did when he celebrated it as the blood that was put on the doorpost so he could be set free. And then Jesus also took the bread and he said, hey, remember, the bread represented the unleavened bread that was broken. The unleavened bread that was broken. And then Jesus shocked them all. Because he took the cup and he said, but tonight, it's different. Tonight, we are not going to celebrate the blood that was put on the doorpost for a nation. But tonight, we are going to celebrate blood that will be shed a few years from now for sins of all humanity. Tonight, we are not going to celebrate the breaking of the unleavened bread that signified the Israelites being set free. Tonight, we are going to celebrate what in a few hours will be my body that will be broken. The sins of not just a nation, but the whole world. On that Good Friday, Jesus takes almost 3,000 years of history and he says, It's my blood that'll be shed, it's my body that'll be broken for you. And you know what he said? He said, Now I want you to take this. And go everywhere and tell everyone that we have a God who does not put conditions before he accepts us. But we have a God who gives of himself and says, I need you to trust me. And my work on the cross and the shedding of my blood and the giving of my body you could have a relationship with God. If you're new to our church and you don't know people, don't let all these pretty attractive faces fool you. Because we are all a hot mess. Amen? Okay, that was a little too amen, all right? Come on now. Find a balance for crying out loud. Like, y'all need to go, yes, I'm a hot mess. It's encouraging when I was hearing people, no, no, I'm not a hot mess. I'm doing better. Do you know why I say that? Because if you talk to anybody in this church and you ask them, Hey, how did your life change? Nobody will tell you, I changed because, I, because of guilt. Guilt is a very bad motivator. Guilt is a very short-term motivator. How do I know? Some of y'all have been living with guilt for years. When you ask most people, they'll say, you know why my life changed? I'll tell you. I was a drug addict. I was an alcoholic. I was messed. I was addicted to porn. I was sleeping. I was doing all kinds of things. And Peter... I just thought there's no way God would accept me. And I just came to a place, though, where I was so desperate. I just said to God, God, rescue me. And God did. Just like that. Dude, what do you mean just like that? Like I had nothing to give. And you'll hear story after story after story of men and women in our church who said, I came to that place where I realized God didn't put conditions before me. Just has to trust. 
Do you know why God does that? Because he knows what you and I know. Parents, this is good parenting advice. Relationship without rules results in rebellion. Will do that relationship results in rebellion. God knows. That's why some of you, you've resisted God, resisted church, resisted anything remotely to do with Christianity. Why? Because your perception is rules and conditions and rules and conditions. I don't even know this, God. But if I do, I got to do that. And you're like, no. And God says, I didn't say that. I didn't give that. I never even inferred it. I gave of my son. To enter into a relationship with you. Then in that context, because I want you to be all that you were designed to be, said, here. You know what? I'm just asking. Because if you're sitting here this morning going, I don't have a relationship with God, Peter. And if I ask you why, you would go, because I'm doing, for crying out loud, 400 years of slavery. What do they do? Nothing. And God, what? Deliver them. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not kidding you. So if you're sitting there going, I got all this junk and all this mess. 400 years of slavery. Did diddly squat jack. And God said, trust me. And you're in. I don't care. I care. I don't know what your issues are, but you're just sitting there going, Peter, I haven't done that. I haven't said, Jesus, receive me based on your work and my work. Receive me, not so that I can earn a righteous acceptance, but based on what you did when you shed your blood for me and when you gave your life for me. Accept me based on his work. If you've never done that, what's keeping you? The rules, well, I try to cover that today. The conditions, but I'm not good enough. 400 years of slavery, didn't do anything. God said, Jesus, can I just ask you, what would happen if this message got out to the world? Because we believed it and we lived. You know what we're going to pick up next week? <laughs> and then God goes, I'm the Lord who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. And God says, so do me a favor. Uh, don't date other people. And you know what we do? We go, no! Sounds a little silly to me, don't you think? I've saved you, delivered you, set you free. Can you worship me and me only? Well, I struggle with it. I don't know about you. It's a daily struggle for me. That's why we're going to talk about it. <sighs> Hopefully every time we do communion now, for some of us, it'll be radically different experience. Yep, it goes all the way back to Exodus. Blood on the doorpost. Unleavened bread. Blood of Christ shed for you as the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God. Body of